Good morning. We're the Zimmermans. I'm Tori. This is my wife, Claire, our daughter, Anna, and our son, Eric. The reading this morning is taken from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53, verse 6. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which is not told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed, esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Thank you so much, and good morning. So good to gather together like this. And I've just had tremendous opportunity to explore what I view as the Mount Everest, the Mount Everest of Old, Older Testament prophecies. Eight centuries prior, and this prophecy was offered to you and offered to me, eight centuries prior to Christ hitting the ground in Palestine. And I want you to spot here the, the detail, the nuances, the description. It's astounding the degree to which we have such information that was provided us. And now we have the opportunity to explore how this promise, this Mount Everest of Older Testament promises, relates to 2020 living. Let's look to our Lord together in prayer. Our fathers, we're coming before you now, we're coming to, before you as people who are very mindful of the times in which we live in. But what we need to do is to make connections. Connections to the past. Bethlehem. Calvary. Empty tomb. Ascension. Connections with the future, Lord's return, new heavens, new earth. All of this is part of your redemption plan of salvation. And what we need to do is to take 2020 and see how it fits into the sum total of what this is all about. So, Father, whether online or in person today, in one service or another today, 
We want to be able to take this extraordinary promise, this Mount Everest of all promises, and now relate it to everyday practical human experiences. Moments together like this are important. Want to seize the opportunity. So, Father, now we pray in the moments to come that you'd warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. As again, now, Father, we've come to you here to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. You and I are standing on the streets of Brooklyn. The bus just passed by. We turn and look at one another, and we're not the least bit surprised. We smile. There in capital letters, bold wording, is Isaiah 53. We're standing in the vicinity of the headquarters of Chosen People Ministries, the great ministry to the Jewish population in, in New York City. Known, known for really being second to only Israel in terms of the overall population of Jews on the globe. And now we have the opportunity to begin to ponder the significance of why of all chapters of the Bible, Isaiah 53 was the one that was chosen to draw the attention of the Jewish population to the one you and I know as Jesus Christ Messiah. Dr. Mitch Glazer is the head of Chosen People Ministries. He has written a book called Isaiah 53. In the back of the book, he tells various stories of how Jews came to saving faith, such as Alan Shaw. As I entered young adulthood, I was like every other Jewish person I had ever known. Hearing the name Jesus produced in me a complex set of emotions. I was baffled by the plethora of churches and crosses and statues and paintings that I saw in virtually every direction I turned. I couldn't fathom it. Add to this the suspicion of the Christian world that was practically encoded in my Jewish DNA. And you wouldn't be surprised that, well, getting to know Jesus was not necessarily high on my list of priorities. Besides, what could his death possibly have to do with me? He had been crucified. So what? It was a sad but distant tragedy. What could the death of a man 20 centuries ago possibly mean to me today? But it was during this time of questioning that someone showed me Isaiah 53. The verses, well, they just leaped out at me. And for the first time, I was able to make a connection with this sufferer who had been given an oversized portion of rejection, grief, humiliation, and suffering that so seemed to characterize the history of my people, the Jews. Taken together with other pieces of knowledge that were coming my way, I could see that it was Jesus. Isaiah 53 helped me to understand two things of critical importance. 
first. The first is that the suffering of this man of sorrows is meaningful. Not only in the abstract, but also in concrete ways that help us to understand ourselves and our circumstances. Now, as the suffering of Yeshua becomes real to us, somehow it helps us to bear our own suffering. And after I made this connection, I could no longer see Jesus, Yeshua, as alien to the Jewish life. It was quite the opposite. He seemed to me to be the embodiment of the Jewish experience for all time, destined to suffer at the hands of the world, yet finally to be vindicated by God. He's on to it. What I want to do with you now is we begin to make our climb up Everest. We're going together as we make this climb draw out five stanzas that are found here in, in this song, the fourth of what are known as the Songs of the Servant. Each stanza has a dominant theme attached to it. Musically speaking, it reaches a crescendo in verse 6 of the 53rd chapter. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's start now with chapter 52, verse 13, down through verse 15. And there musically, in our, in our first stanza, as you and I, as we reflect upon the Messiah, we've spotted over the course of these four weeks as the servant of the Lord, begin by now noting with me here the initial assurance that's offered to the servant. It's dominant. And it starts out once again with that visual behold. That is a verbal word used to create a visual experience. They want you now to picture this one. This one that Isaiah, eight centuries prior to Jesus' coming, refers to as the servant. But you see, God the Father is speaking through Isaiah at this point. And so God the Father is referring to this one to come as my servant. Now here's what's interesting. 20 times in Isaiah 42 through 53, my servant is in the singular. Thereafter, after chapter 53 onward, it's in the plural. Why? Because like a pendulum swinging back and forth, what God is saying is that in the singular, I'm looking towards the ultimate Jew, Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus Christ. But then when he sweeps to the plural, he's saying, here and here is the sum total of, of Jewish history. You are to be my servants to the nations. And back and forth he goes. Behold, my servant. And what's fascinating about this musical composition is that it's known as an inclusio, where he begins with my servant, in verse 13 of the 52nd chapter, and he ends with my servant, in the 11th verse of the 53rd chapter, he's bookending now. He wants to pull all this together for you. He wants you to make sense of this one you and I know as Jesus Christ. 
But the one who came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many now, is being referred by God the Father as my servant. He shall act wisely. Or from the Hebrew, he shall prosper. And furthermore, you and I are told here, in terms of the assurance that's being given him at the forefront, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So far, so good, we say. Very encouraging. But what I want you to see here is that with the peaks come the valleys. Verse 14 deals with the first coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 15 deals with the second coming of Jesus Christ. In the first coming, all of a sudden now you find a descent. As many were astonished at you, hyphen. It's almost as if at this point, you're inching towards the cross of Jesus Christ with the wording that comes, that comes next. Hyphen. His, his appearance was so marred. You're thinking of the scourging. You're thinking of the humiliation. You're thinking of the floggings. You're thinking of the verbal abuse. You're thinking of the crucifixion. And when his disfigured body was placed upon that cross, the general public is looking at him at this point. And the, and the religious unbeliever looks up at that sign above that says King of the Jews and does not see the connection. They're used to the appearance of kings being pomp and circumstances, glory, splendor. And now the Jews at this point would have felt so let down. They've got their King David's. They can backtrack to King Saul and see physical stature and incredible handsome appearance. But this one? His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. His form beyond that of the children of mankind. Another hyphen. Isn't it amazing how the sovereign God would choose vehicles that neither you nor I would necessarily choose to achieve his purposes? A couple of generations back, writer puts it this way. There was a Christian leader that came to our state capital to speak. Had a terrific reputation as, as an evangelist. And so we were, to, we were to entertain him. His sponsors called and said to me, Governor, will you have this man up for dinner before the evening gathering? And Paul Green said, yes, we'd be delighted as a family. Time came, he writes, I rushed home from my, from my office at work, high expectations of meeting this dynamic speaker who had evidently had such a wonderful impact for, upon others for the cause of Christ. But right before me was, in his words, a gnome-like creature 
who look like something that you and I would be prone to reject. My face registered my disappointment. My guest, however, looked at me and said with a secure sense of confidence, Governor, isn't it wonderful what God can use? And then he spoke. And so it was. Sometimes you have to look for beauty behind the packaging. We're in a culture, you see, that loves the packaging. But what we want to see here is, as we unwrap the gift, what's to be found? By all appearances at this point, this is not necessarily someone that the king of the Jews would, uh, they would point to and say, that's our man. But here's what we've got to do now. You're going to have to connect the first coming, which is found in verse 14, with the second coming, which is found in verse 15. Don't disconnect them. For in verse 15, English Standard Version at this point has the reading, so shall he sprinkle many. The Hebrew word also carries with with the idea that he will startle the nations. When you read the book of Revelation, that's exactly what happens. Something startling occurs. Sudden impact to such a degree that the political leaders of the world are described this way. They shall shut their mouths because of him. Why? For that which has not been told them, they now see. And that which they have not heard, well, they get it. They understand. There is something profound Maybe you've had this in your own personal experience. When you are with someone who gets you, when all of a sudden you have that sense, he understands. She understands. Up until this point, there was global misunderstanding. But now grace breaks in. Light shines in darkness. The aha moment of history arrives. In verses 13, 14, and 15, while everything looks bleak in verse 14, you've got to realize there's a verse 15 to life to follow. There's a first coming. There's a second coming. And that servant is being given the initial assurance eight centuries prior found in this incredible passage that has bearing upon the Christmas story of this week. But now, you're on to the second stanza, second dominant theme. If the first dominant theme was the initial assurance, the second dominant theme is the social rejection. I want you to see it here now coming out at you. Verse 1, verse 2. Verse 3, rejection. You ever felt rejected? 
simply leave you. Read these words. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Question mark. He's leading you in. Already belief, faith, trust is heavy on the mind of the writer. As it should for you, as it should be for me, as we inch closer to Christmas Eve services and then Christmas Day. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Question mark. Arm of the Lord. Typically signifying throughout the scriptures the idea of the power of God. Gives us the reason. And the literature teachers and professors of our congregation would point out the dual simile in verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant. See the word like? And like a, a root out of dry ground. All of a sudden, for the people in the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, it seems as if all this is coming out of nowhere. The miracle is being performed and the astounding claims that he is uttering. They look at him and they're stuck on 52 verse 14. His appearance was marred beyond human semblance. They would draw the link from verse 14 of the prior chapter to verse 2 of chapter 53. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And so there they are forced to look up at this one on the cross. And the body is marred and the body has been scourged. And this individual has been humbled through verbal abuse. You ever been there? And yet, irony of ironies, above that cross, it reads, King of the Jews. What do you make of this? No beauty that we should desire him. But you see, evidently, this beautiful gift has come in some very bad wrapping. It means that we're going to have to unwrap the gift. Have you done that? Have you explored the essence of who Jesus Christ is? Because in verse 3, you and I are told he was despised. And here is where the dominant theme of this stanza stands out. Social rejection faced by the servant. Well, it's right there. He was despised and rejected by men. Your mind goes fast forward into the Newer Testament. Apostle John saw it. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Get this, verse 11, John 1. And he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Ever felt rejected? He was despised and rejected by men. He gets you. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief for all those who've been grieving, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. What do you do with that kind of rejection? 
Well, Neil Postman quotes a letter written by a high school senior who had received a letter of rejection from the college he wanted to attend and responded with, Dear admissions officer, I am in receipt of your rejection of my application. And as much as I would like to accommodate you, I find I cannot accept this. I have already received four rejections from other colleges, and this number is, in fact, over my limit. Therefore, I must reject your rejection, and I will appear to begin classes come September. Well, God has sent Jesus Christ to reject the rejection because after the first coming comes the second coming when the rejection is rejected. And what you see here in the midst of all this is now a suffering Savior that gets you. And when the kings of this world have that aha moment, we're in chapter 52, verse 13, it ended, that which they had not heard, they understand. Now you have that moment of aha. And now you have a Savior who understands, you see. There's this initial assurance in verses 13 through 15. But you're wise enough to make the connections to the social rejection found in verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 53. And now, you make your way forward. We're climbing Everest. And we're making our way upward, you see, to the third stanza. Which I'll put this way, it's the, the final substitution achieved by the servant. You move from the initial assurance to the social rejection to the final substitution. Notice how this begins. With certainty. Surely, not possibly. Surely. Now, as you begin to unpack this at this point, what I want you to see here in this third stanza is that what God is doing for you and for me is allowing for us to understand the depths as well as the breadth of what Jesus Christ would experience. He has borne our griefs. In other words, he has carried them. Now in the midst of this Advent season, if you find yourself grieving, maybe an immediate loss, Maybe a prior loss. And maybe there's a chair at the table this Advent season where there's a vacancy. Look at this. He's borne our griefs. He's experienced this. Furthermore, to reiterate, carried our sorrows. The one who had to carry that cross is the one who carries your sorrows. He gets it. So not only do we have what theologians call penal substitution, we have here emotional understanding. He has entered into the grief process. He has carried the sorrows of humanity. What's our reaction to all that? How do you respond to that? 
Well, we're told here at this point, and I want you to transport yourself to the cross of Christ. Do you feel the social distancing that was happening between people and Jesus? We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He gets us, but the us didn't get him. But when you're misunderstood, you continue to minister. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God afflicted. What I want you to see here, that all the verbs here, they're passive. God is the director of this, and he's doing things to the Messiah. He's allowing for Messiah to be, to be pierced by nails on the cross. He's allowing Messiah to be verbally abused and to be mocked and slapped by the soldiers. He's allowing the punishment to be placed upon Messiah. He's allowing the wounds and stripes to become a reality pierced. You're up to verse 5. But I want you now to mark within your scripture the four hours. Because this pertains to substitution. He was pierced for our. In other words, he's our substitute. He was pierced for our transgression. Phrase it a different way. He was crushed for our iniquities. See the extraordinary wording here? This is what theologians call substitutionary atonement. He takes your place. I was sitting in a synagogue. Had my yarmulke on. Next to me was Eddie. Eddie had come to Yeshua as his Lord and Savior after one of our services in New England. We're pondering what's unfolding as the rabbi is speaking, and he's speaking, interestingly enough, from Isaiah 53. But what was interesting to me was that he was making the singular, the plural, and he was simply referring to this as the, the Jewish experience throughout all of history. Failing to understand that this was the Messiah for all of history. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And all of a sudden, Eddie jams his elbow into my side, looks at me, and he says, that's Yeshua. And he recognized what the rabbi didn't recognize at that point in time. He had broke free. He had come to saving faith in the one who had died for his sins. And he was able to say that by analyzing carefully the Old Testament text of Isaiah chapter 53, substitution that all the prior sacrifices 
were simply directional signs pointing us towards that final sacrifice, the once and for all that took place on the cross. Don't miss it. Not once, twice, for our is found here in these verses. Now, notice what comes next. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We're living in a culture that longs for healing. They long for breakthroughs, medically and otherwise. But when you connect first and second comings, chapter 52, verses 14 and 15, what you will find is that right now there is the longing within the hearts of humanity to have a glorified body in the present. Jesus had to go through a first coming to get to a second coming. There are some things still to be had. All we like sheep have gone astray. There's the herd mentality. But now he individualizes. He goes from the plural to the singular in case we are worried that uh, we're left out. We have turned everyone to his own way. The counterpart to Jesus saying, I am the way. Here it comes. You heard it read to you. Yahweh. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is why in our communion services, you'll hear the phrase, no sin found within him. Our sin placed upon him. The Jew says, but what about all those prior sacrifices? Were they effective? Well, subjectively, yes. But objectively, they were directional signs pointing towards the ultimate, the final sacrifice, the one who came to die at Calvary, you see, our Savior. This is why, and we'll draw this out in our Christmas Eve services, there had to be two natures within one person, divine and human. For you see, only God could pay the penalty, being sinless. Only man should pay the penalty, Therefore, we need both God and man. That's why the virgin birth. That's why we have a Bethlehem story. And that's why we have to connect Bethlehem to Calvary, you see. Because there's purpose in the two natures within one person. There's your on-ramp. There's your opportunity to explain the why of Christmas when people begin to unwrap the gift. That's what Dan Goldberg did. For you see, in the book Isaiah 53, 
Dr. Mitch Glazer chronicles this experience that another doctor, Dr. Dan Goldberg, offers. Many years ago, our family lived in L.A. On a block that was, well, mostly Gentile, we were, we were Jews, so we were noticed by our neighbors. Well, one day when I returned home from high school, I was informed of someone who wanted to meet with me, a Gentile lady. She had asked permission to sit down with me, and I had no idea what it was all about. And when I went to her home, she said, I want to read something to you. And she began reading from Isaiah 53, an inch to long. It was the first section of the Bible I had ever heard. After my brother Lewis, who was eight years older, had come to faith in Yeshua, Messiah, he told my parents that he had become a believer and they were upset. You see, they had come from Poland. They were familiar with persecution of the Jewish people. They'd experienced it themselves. But Lewis's faith impacted me. Another Gentile woman in the neighborhood gave me a Gideon Bible. And after reading the Gospel of John, I followed in my brother's footsteps and became a believer in Jesus at the age of 18. I don't ever even remember the name of the woman who first showed me Isaiah 53. I only remember that somehow God impressed in my mind that this passage, written by a Jewish prophet eight centuries prior, was talking about Jesus with such detail. That impression stayed with me. I knew very little about Jesus at the time, only that he, according to Isaiah 53, verse 6, was said to have died for our sins. And this connected. I learned more about the Bible. Isaiah 53 became even more meaningful to me. And I still have that Gideon Bible that woman gave me all the years later. There's something about God's word. And when you put it in the sequence of time and see the detail of prophecy being fulfilled, you're awed by what you and I are, are possibly considering here at this point. So now, what do you do with this? Well, you're on to the fourth stanza. You're singing as you're climbing Everest, aren't you? And in this fourth stanza, what I want you to see here is the personal submission seen in the servant. And I want you to draw links now with this writing eight centuries prior to what you know in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. See if you can even spot some of the verses in those Gospels. They're embedded in this, in this promissory experience where you read now. He was oppressed. Where was he oppressed in the gospel accounts? He was, he was afflicted. Yet he opened not 
his mouth. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Sovereign silence. Prophetic fulfillment. In the midst of his pain. He understands pain, you know. Once again now, the literature teacher, and we've had them in our congregation, dual similes. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that it shears before it shears is silent. To reiterate, he opened not his mouth. You're up to verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, whisked away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, when they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. What do you make of this in verse 9? And with a rich man... In his death, when it was evening, there was a rich man from Arimathea whose name was Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered for it to be given to him. Joseph of Arimathea took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut out in the rock. And they rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 and onwards. Eight centuries prior, such detail was promised. But did you even notice here? They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, though he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. That here is a sovereign God that is simply setting out to fulfill the word of God found in these verses. You and I are awed by what we see here. We see the sovereign God at work through the verses we find here. Quietness, dignity, no attention is he drawing to himself at this point. A deal... Moody's Northfield Bible Conference setting. I've walked the grounds. There's a story told. In the days of Moody, in the late 1800s, there was a European custom at the time where each guest put his shoes outside his room to be cleaned by hall servants overnight. But of course, in America, no hall servants, just a lot of shoes out there in the hallways. But Moody had been to Europe, shared the gospel. And so this one who was the head of the grounds, walking the dormitory that night, 
Saul's shoes and was determined not to embarrass any of his, his brothers from Europe. So he mentioned the need to some of the students who were there, but there was mere silence on their part. So we're told by the biographer, he returned to the dorm, gathered up the shoes in the silence and quietness of his room. The world's great evangelist began to clean and polish the shoes and place them in front of the doors, unbeknownst to the guests. He functioned as their servant, you see. And now you and I inch into the final stanza where the idea of the servant reappears and pulls all of this together. Because in this final stanza, I want you to join me now in seeing the eventual honor given to the servant. Because in verse 10, we read, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It's as if we're standing now in Everest and we're looking down at where we've come from. Haven't we reviewed such verses prior in, in this section? We have. But he doesn't want us to forget how we got to this point. He was, he has put him to grief. But Yahweh did this to Yeshua, Jesus. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant. And now you have bookended this. It began in chapter 52. Verse 13, behold, my servant. He wraps it up now in chapter 53, verse 11. Out of this anguish, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. But now take the righteous one here, and he talks about others being accounted righteous. How does that happen? It happens when you put your faith and trust in the righteous one, you are declared righteous. You see, isn't this brilliant? Eight centuries prior, this is what you're finding here. Pend in this promise, it all comes together. He's exalted, he's honored. And the only way this can happen is if he's resurrected. No other explanation. Because it all comes out in verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. And because he poured out his soul to death, if he died, and yet he's getting all these blessings, it means he's raised from the dead, numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors, makes intercession for the transgressors. But you and I remember, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
making intercession, even on that cross. We can nod our heads, standing in that corner in Brooklyn. Bus comes by, Isaiah 53 on the bus. Joseph People Ministries headquarters, a few blocks away. What could his death possibly have to do with me? He had been crucified, so what? It was a sad day, distant tragedy. What could the death of a man 20 centuries ago possibly mean to me today? But you connect the dots. First coming, second coming. Bethlehem, Calvary, Easter Sunday morning. On it goes, the second coming. You pull this together, and all of a sudden you have your aha moment. And the one who understands you now gives you the opportunity to understand him if you put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. Have you done this? Let's stand together. So, Father, in the various services today, for those that are engaged with this teaching via live stream. You have dramatically brought to our attention that you are sovereign over time. That you understand the future more than we understand our past. That eight centuries prior, you could give attention to such detail and draw it out in such ways. It forces us to deal with the integrity of your word, to embrace the fact that you sent Jesus via Bethlehem to die in Calvary. So if there's one in any of the services today or for those watching currently or subsequently during the weeks online, YouTube, whatever it might be, Father, work powerfully, stir the heart, lead them to Jesus. May they now connect the dots and find that there's peace for their soul. Thanking you, Father. Thank you for taking us to the curb. Thanking you for allowing us to see Isaiah 53. Thanking you now for allowing us to see Jesus. We give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.